Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Ian Burrell. Uh, He's a contributing editor of the Mail on Sunday as a foreign reporter and commentator. He has a weekly column in the iPaper. He also writes for the Times, the Washington Post, the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, the Sun, the Tortoise, the Spectator, and the Unheard above others. So he's a foreign correspondent who's reported for more than 60 countries from Albania to Zimbabwe, which is great. And I'd like to talk to him today about the uh, origins of uh, COVID-19, because he's probably literally been around and spoken to people on the ground. So, Ian, thanks for coming. Thanks very much. You know, so I know that you've traveled to many countries. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the origins of COVID-19. So you being on the ground in many places, um, when this epidemic began, where were you? And how did you first learn about it? Uh, I was actually really mainly in California and Mexico, of all places. So uh, I was covering some stories in California, and then I was in Mexico doing a um, uh, cartel-related stuff. So uh, I guess I was on the other side of the world to where it broke out. And what did you think? Did you hear about it at the stage where it was just a local unusual flu in Wuhan? Or when did you first hear about it? What, What stage was that? No, like most people, I first picked up stuff in... And then I think I first wrote about it in February with the um, social media uh, concern within China over the cover up and the death of one of the doctors concerned uh, who was trying to warn people about the virus. And so the first piece I wrote was just looking at the way Chinese people were so outraged at the fact that there had seemed to be uh, an initial cover up of doctors who were trying to alert citizens to what was becoming clear. I think I called it a potential pandemic uh, back then. So obviously since then, we don't need the word potential. So as it's evolved in March, when there was uh, some lockdowns, and then in April, where it seemed like there was lockdowns worldwide, what was your perception like? What were you thinking? Were you thinking this is crazy? Or like, you know, did you, were you able to travel? Where were no, you? Uh, were you stuck? No, I was stuck. We were locked down. Uh, My last trip was at the beginning of March when I went to cover a migrant story in Turkey on the Turkish-Greek border. Then I was locked down. And uh, I do write a lot about health as well. And um, I began to look into this. To begin with, I accepted all the scientific uh, stuff we were getting, that it probably started in the market and that it was obviously a zoonotic disease. Um, I guess the first piece that really began to make waves that I wrote about it was when I did possibly one of the the first piece really having a go at the World Health Organization for its fact that under its direct general, it was effectively collaborating with the Chinese cover-up and that it had, I thought, rather suspicious links, uh, which uh, obviously I didn't know that uh, the United States president would then pick up and run with uh, such stuff with such uh, vigor and to the extent of cutting off uh, American support. But that was the first piece I really began to look into what was happening. And then I was looking more and more into China and uh, the Chinese cover-up. And I did a couple of early pieces uh, discovering some of the 
new evidence showing that perhaps it uh, broke out a little bit earlier than was originally claimed and that the market theory looked a little bit suspicious and shaky and also some of the details about uh, the woman uh, scientist at the center of a lot of this stuff Xi Jinglin uh, uh, more famously known as Batwoman uh, a very impressive mm. researcher and scientist who's done a lot of stunning work but also the person who is at the center of a lot of these allegations and claims. Has she disappeared? Has anyone been able to interview her or speak to her? Yeah, she has given email interviews recently, uh, and she said a few things on social media. There were rumours that she disappeared, but um, they were quickly disproved. It does look to me, when you read what she's saying now, that it's coming through the sort of party committee, and it's all being handled very carefully. It doesn't, it reads like sort of committee speak, the way she's responding to questions. But then that wouldn't be surprising, given the importance of this for China and the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, it makes total sense. So um, when you became suspicious that this came from the wet market, um, what did your perception evolve to? Like, what, what other evidence did you see and you know, where, how did your perception evolve from there? Well, I was looking into the original Lancet paper on the wet market showed that the very first cases, which they identified at the beginning of December, when you look at them, that um, uh, most of the handful then, the first ones weren't actually from people uh, at the wet market. And there was a very significant report in the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, which was clearly very well informed and showed cases going back to mid-November. And again, they weren't linked to the market. And when you followed these through and looked at the Chinese media reports, and there was some fantastic Chinese investigative journalism done early on in the uh, pandemic, which were then uh, removed from being publicised or social media. But uh, uh, if you know where to go, you can still find them. And there's a lot of really interesting detail on that about how the genetic sequencing was covered up and how much information they had back. It was clearly China knew that this, there was human transmission by about the middle uh, to the end of December. Uh, clearly, uh, there had been several sequencing of the genetic code. And indeed, by January the 2nd, uh, she uh, herself had uh, sequenced the code, but it only actually got shared with the world uh, about more than a week later, when it was posted on uh, a public site, a public access site by an Australian scientist on behalf of a Shanghai professor who then had his lab closed down two days later. So even with something as important as genetic sequencing, which allows people to start work on vaccines, to look at treatments, and is so important to get out there as quickly as possible, there was clear signs that the Chinese state was covering it up. So it wasn't just the outbreak itself that they covered up. It wasn't just that they mishandled it, like so many countries early on, by allowing all the New Year festivities to take part. It wasn't just that they silenced the doctors who were trying to alert the public to take precautions. It was also that they covered up the uh, start dates of it, which we still don't really know, and they covered up a lot of the early scientific work that was being done, which would have given them an advantage also in terms of developing treatments, vaccines and such like. So there's no doubt that however you look at it, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, uh, despite some brilliant work done by journalists, by doctors, etc., was taking action to cover up what was going on. And the impact of that is very profound. Of course, Lots of countries have made mistakes. The US has made catastrophic mistakes. Britain has made catastrophic mistakes. And it's hard to really see many countries beyond the likes of Taiwan who have handled this well. 
But at the same time, if they're, according to a study by uh, academics at Southampton University in the UK, in conjunction with some Chinese colleagues, if they'd alert, if they'd had one week earlier lockdown in Wuhan, 65% of the cases would have been reduced. And if they had had three weeks earlier, an estimated 95% of cases would have been re reduced. Now, had that happened, it's possible, we never know, but it's possible and it's plausible that we wouldn't then be in a pandemic situation worldwide. It's such a fast evolving and uh, the exponential growth is so intense with this virus that that's why it's, it matters that the Chinese made these both mistakes and deliberate cover-ups in the early days. How do you think, is there any intelligence on how the virus first came to be? I'm sure there is, but I've not seen any. We know about the Washington Post did a very good report showing there were concerns over the laboratory. We've seen claims of intelligence data, both from uh, US government officials and uh, a controversial Australian report. Personally, I've not seen any. Uh, I've not had access to any. I've not heard of any uh, through sources that I trust. Uh, and interestingly, I did talk to intelligence people in one country, which is renowned for having among the most um, uh, vigorous and uh, successful intelligence agencies. And even they admitted that they had to tread carefully on it because of the impact if you go public with annoying China. Um, do you think that it was uh, deliberately manufactured or do you think it was... I mean, it, it just simply escaped because of lab protocol, like poor lab protocol the Wuhan labs. Are you able to speculate? I think uh, it's highly unlikely, verging on the very, very unlikely to the impossible, that it was actually a deliberate action. I think we should discount that. It's very, it makes no sense for the Chinese government to have made it and released it deliberately. There's no evidence for that at all. There's no suggestion. There's not even any hints of that. So I would discount that for a start. Um, at the end of the, the day, uh, the... This, this virus can only have come about three different routes. Firstly, it could have been um, a zoonotic transmission direct from bats to human beings. Secondly, it could have been through an intermediate uh, animal, a host animal like SARS with, uh, in 2002 to 2004. And thirdly, it could have been a lab leak. At the moment, we have no evidence to show anything beyond that it probably originated in bats and it's obviously ended up in human beings and that's why anyone who says they know the origin or they can discount the lab leak theory is talking nonsense you know i've seen at least one instance and read the paper myself it was from nature or science where um you know people had been working with a, a sars virus backbone and trying to modify it to see if it could infect humans to evaluate whether that could happen it sounds just very very familiar, very similar to what's actually happened, perhaps naturally. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly work does go on in laboratories around the world to try and develop our understanding of diseases and zoonotic diseases and coronaviruses. That has involved um, quite cutting edge and controversial experimentation in developing effectively uh, new strands of virus uh, and improving the infectability of these viruses. Um, and indeed, you know, that's why this has been the whole controversy over whether America should fund this work and whether it should be in China done at all. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, there has been a lot of work going on. And that's why we know that within the lab itself, there was um, work going on in this sort of area. We know that it was being done in a way um, which leaves no trace of it. 
and that's that's in the own papers of the uh, requests for more funding from the from the US authorities. So we know all that's been happening. The other aspect about the lab leak, why it shouldn't be discounted, is bear in mind that when Scientific American early on in the pandemic carried an interview with she, and she admitted that she rushed back to her lab and her first thought was, could this have leaked? And the Chinese have actually tried to blame America, saying it's a lab leak. We've seen lots of laboratory leaks. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that things can leak from laboratories, which are dealing with human beings who make mistakes and are fallible, and dealing with uh, you know microscopic things, which are very hard to detect. So that's why unless we know that it wasn't a lab leak, and there's proof that it wasn't a lab leak, then uh, as uh, any respectable scientist will say, uh, we shouldn't discount it. We have to wait for evidence before we can prove anything. And all I'm saying is not that it is a lab leak. I'm just reflecting the views of a lot of top scientists who are brave enough to say in public and more who are brave, who will say it privately that we should not discount a lab leak based on current evidence. It quite possibly, quite probably was as natural zoonotic transmission but equally, there is a strong probability with this very strange virus, and we can talk about its properties that make it so strange, that it could have come from the laboratory itself. And we also know that it's yeah. curious that in the city where it did break out, there are three cutting edge laboratories uh, of different grades, grade two, uh, grade four, which is the highest grade in terms of biosecurity a grade three one, which is a main breeding place for test animals and also carried out research, and a grade two one, which also carried out research on bats. In the grade two one, we know from a paper that was published and then instantly withdrawn by Chinese scientists that there had issues there in the past with um, bats biting and bleeding on, on researchers. Uh, and on the grade four one, we also know because the Communist Party chief within the laboratory itself in Wuhan, the Institute of Virology, who is also the head of the biosecurity department, had written last year in a published paper in his own name that there were concerns over security and that it was inadequate and that inexperienced people were doing some of the work that should have been done by experienced people. Now, all that helps show that there is potential for a laboratory leak theory uh, and that it shouldn't be discounted. And from my understanding, the higher the biosafety level, the, the more dangerous the pathogens, but the higher the security. So in this case, it could have been the, the BS level two lab, which had the lowest safety protocols, but worked supposedly with the most innocuous stuff, could have been the leak or vice versa. The BS4 uh, that works with the worst stuff that has supposedly the highest security, but who knows? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, we, we just don't know. All we know is that there are laboratories in that city, in, including, by coincidence, the one which is the highest biosecurity doing the most cutting-edge work with and, and focusing on bat coronaviruses, and that there they were doing some of the uh, sort of stuff which wouldn't be allowed in certain other laboratories around the world and um, that there were concerns over biosecurity. That doesn't mean it did leak from there, but it does mean that no respectable journalist or scientist should discount the idea that it could have leaked from there. Yeah, it makes sense. And then you were saying there's some unusual characteristics of the virus. Can you talk about those? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole um, series of things which also uh, throw up questions over it. For a start, there is the theory about that it maybe came through the wet market, which was 
pushed originally quite hard, including by the um, uh, Chinese health authorities, the main sort of body responsible for it. Um, however, they didn't share the samples that they took at the, at the market. It was then quickly cleaned up in the words of one leading Hong Kong professor, like a crime scene. And it was thought for a long time that this was the most like, likely place. And indeed, you still hear everyone saying it came from the wet market. In fact, that Lancet paper helped indicate that that wasn't the case. Then there was sterling work done by scientists in uh, America and Canada who uh, basically uh, analyzed the genetics uh, element. And they were from the Broad Institute, a top genetic research unit set up by Harvard University's and Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And this looked at all the genetic data and showed that the market source just didn't look credible. And then uh, when I reported that, that went quite big and um, it was backed up by other work. And then a couple of weeks later, the uh, Chinese CGT admitted that the, the market actually wasn't the source of it. So let's discount the market source. Then we can look at the actual disease itself. Now that Broad Institute study, which was a very bold and brave study, also said two other things of interest. One is that they were surprised that SARS-CoV-2, which is the, the, uh, the disease itself, was already pre-adapted to human transmission. And they looked at its genetic stability, showing that as it rampaged around the planet, it actually hadn't evolved very much. And that was surprising because normally when a virus comes from an animal, it's not, uh, in a, it's not at its best mode in terms of hitching a lift in the human body. And it gets better at that as it travels around the world and it strengthens. Whereas, and we saw that with SARS in 2002 to 2004. We haven't seen the same thing with this uh, uh, virus, which, which is curious. Now they also said, uh, which was again, very bold of them, that the possibility that a non-genetically engineered precursor could have adapted to humans while being studied in a laboratory should be considered. Now that was a very bold move of them to say that. A week later, uh, I wrote about something else which came from an Australian team, a very credible team who uh, are developing vaccines down there. And they, they said, again, it was not a typical of a normal zoonotic infection because it was uniquely adapted to infect humans. And they again said, publicly, there's no evidence for leak, but there's enough circumstantial data to concern us, and it remains a possibility until it's ruled out. And essentially what Professor Nikolai Petrovsky, the professor of medicine at Flinders University, led the study was saying, was he was saying that he'd not seen a zoonotic virus behave like this. And curiously, that was something said by uh, George Garfou, who was ba who's basically the, the, the head uh, the Fauci of China, he's also said he's not seen a zoonotic virus behave in such a way. So then let's look a little bit more at the virus itself. It's curious that when uh, um, Xi Zhengli wrote about it, she missed the fact that it has something called a furring cleavage site, which actually isn't found in the most similar types of coronaviruses. What it does, it allows that it's spike protein, which sticks out of the virus particle, to bind onto cells in human tissues, including the lungs, the liver, the small intestines, and even nerve cells. Now, this is not found on either SARS or the most similar coronaviruses. And those right. that do... Can you hear me all right? No, I was just saying, right, you know, the, the implication of it binding to so many cell types. Please go ahead. Yeah, exactly. It was significant that it's, it's so uh, good at attacking different parts of the body. But also coronaviruses that do have this feature are very genetically different 
to this particular one. So again, that's an interesting thing. And it's curious that she, when she was first writing about it, she, uh, when she uh, detailed the genetic sequencing, she stopped just before that, which, which is an interesting thing for, for uh, such a curious scientist and a, a good scientist. Of, Wait, she, she left it out of the sequencing, you mean? Well, she just stopped her sequence. She stopped just before the point where it would have exposed this. Um, now, that could have been just, the, you know, that was where she was. But, you know, other scientists have pointed me and said that is rather curious that she did that. Um, and we do know that they were carrying out gain of function experiments on bat coronaviruses since 2015, that they'd been playing around with the SARS, the SARS virus, inserting, inserting snippets from other bat diseases, constructing new chimeric coronaviruses. And that's basically why Barack Obama's administration stopped such work, because uh, as some critics say, the only point of such work is creating new and non-natural risks. And we also know that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was creating chimeric coronaviruses using seamless unidirectional ligation procedures, which effectively means there's no sign of human manipulation in the resulting genome sequence. So all of these are curious factors. But let's push on a little bit more. We also know, because um, the, these scientists in Wuhan have told us, that um, its closest ancestor is something called RATG13, which uh, they discovered in the caves down in southern China. And uh, they discovered this similarity, 96% similar. Uh, and they suddenly discovered it and said, hey, look, we forgot about this virus we had in our, in our stocks here, in our freezers. But uh, it looks like the most, the most similar one. Now, uh, the interesting thing is, first they renamed it uh, because they'd already given it a name back when they discovered it. And yet there was no need to rename it. They've said they've not done any work on it when there's evidence that they have been working on it since then. There's very little detail has been shared about this one. Quick question here. Is it, is it at all practice, common practice to rename you know, no. a virus once it's been discovered? Okay, so that's right. You can't tell me that that's very abnormal. And I should add that um, uh, although there are some scientists who have gone public on this, I'm getting quite a lot of help from scientists who are working at, play, at universities or laboratories or research units uh, where it's not going to do them any favours to go public on it, but privately are very sceptical about some of the information coming out. So this isn't just one or two maverick scientists. These are quite serious people all around the world who are raising these issues. And again, I stress, they're not saying it did come from the lab. They're saying we can't discount that it came from the lab. Um, well, it sounds uh, like uh, with all this, you know, with all these curiosities, as you call them, that uh, there's at least a, a solid likelihood that, you know, it, it, it or similar things were engineered and it interacted with people and, you know, one of the labs and then got out. It seems like a, that's the path, the most likely. Well, I, w I wouldn't even say it's most likely. I think we've got to be cautious um, because, you know, nature is uh, the most vicious bioterrorist of the lot. We know nature has given us things like Ebola recently, uh, which is a comparatively new disease, which became more virulent over time. And the, work, the, the outbreak in West Africa was far more virulent than any previous outbreak. So we cannot discount that nature, this has given us this, bequeathed us this um, through natural transmission. And it would be just as wrong to say it did come from the laboratory as to say that it didn't come from the laboratory. Um, but it is fair to ask the questions. And we should also raise the case, the mysterious case of the miners. 
um, back when they discovered ROTG 13, there were um, some miners, a handful of miners who died from something which looks now very similar to COVID-19. Now, they, of course, were working in the caves where these bats live uh, and therefore working with very high levels of sort of um, uh, all the, the materials there. So when they became infected, they became infected uh, very badly and three of the six died. Um, now, if they died from a precursor to COVID-19, which, uh, again, we don't know for sure they did, but there is increasing chance that it was, does that indicate that COVID-19 was there back there in the caves where all the bats were taken to the laboratory for research purposes or samples were taken? Was work then done with it for some reason to, to boost it, to investigate it, whatever? Um, but the, the deaths of these miners are pretty significant um, because, you know, once again, they show us that there is another reason to wonder about some of the things that have, you know, been going on in the past here. Okay, um, moving on just for a moment to nation's reaction to the virus. You know, Wuhan locked down first, then Italy, then in short order, you know, a bunch of nations in Europe and then the U.S., you know, to varying degrees. Does that surprise you, just given your experience and, you know, having been reporting on all kinds of issues for so long that, uh, I guess, first of all, it seems to have become very politicized, the virus, and then how nations appear to be copycatting each other and looking to each other for some kind of guidance, but it doesn't seem to be coming from anywhere. Well, I think this is, you know, uh, I've never seen a pandemic. You've never seen one in your lifetime. This is something new for people. I actually have some sympathy for politicians who are trying to handle this because it's exploded at them. They're not experts in it. And they're having to grapple with something completely outside their experiences. Having said that, it then makes sense to listen to the scientific advice you're getting and to follow that advice. Now, clearly, some countries responded very well. China went with a very uh, typically autocratic lockdown, which uh, did seem to work, but the death toll uh, was probably far, far higher than they've ever indicated. If you look at some of the details that have come out in terms of the number of funerals taking place in Wuhan. We also know that Taiwan, uh, Democratic Taiwan, which was the first to alert the world to this back in December the 31st, tried to send a team in to investigate, um, but was discounted because uh, because it's Taiwan and China bullies people not to listen to Taiwan or, or accept Taiwan as a member of bodies like the WHO. Taiwan has dealt with it very well. South Korea dealt with it well. Hong Kong initially dealt with it well, but is struggling now. So some countries have dealt with it well. Even in Europe, we've seen countries with very, very different approaches. Turkey did quite well. Um, there's places in the Balkans which have had a remarkable record. America has obviously done terribly. Britain has done terribly. Spain did badly. Sweden is, is interesting because they've not gone for the lockdown, has higher death rates than uh, in their neighbouring countries, but argues in the long term it's going to do better. Holland, where I am at the moment, has had what they call intelligent lockdown, which is a sort of gentle lockdown. But for instance, they don't believe face masks offer much of a solution. And so they haven't implemented face mask mandatory uh, legislation except on public transport, unlike 120 other countries. Uh, America, clearly, it has become absurdly politicised. Uh, which is, to me, it seems a symbol of the divisions in America, just like in Britain. Um, but clearly that's impacting on America 
in terms of how they're dealing with it, the tragedy of that for me is that we have something going on at the moment. To me, I think the pandemic is speeding up all the changes that were taking place. It's not changing the world, it's just speeding up everything, whether it's in terms of online shopping through to international relations. China is clearly trying to use the pandemic to assert the fact that it's the new world leader and that its model of government, autocratic, successfully dealt with this and is the one to emulate. At the same time, you've got America, which uh, has gone backwards, in my view, in recent years, in terms of leading the world as a, as a democracy. And um, unfortunately, is looking absolutely cat-candid and chaotic and catastrophic in how it's dealing with it. And I do fear the long-term ramifications of this uh, in terms of the whole uh, future, really, of democracy around the world. So, I, you know, I wouldn't underestimate it uh, in terms of the importance of what's going on. But at the same time, of course, if it transpired, it did come from the laboratory and that China had covered this up, I think the outrage within China, which is a much more diverse uh, country than people think from the outside, 1.3 billion people, uh, and even the Communist Party only has a, fra a small fraction of members of that country, I think the outrage would be incredibly intense. And it's not impossible that it could even bring down certainly Xi and uh, possibly, arguably, even the party itself. And that's why I think this whole issue, which may never be proved uh, definitively, but is so important because this pandemic has put uh, the, the whole world under the spotlight and every country, every leader, every health service, in a way, every society, every individual is being tested in their response. And it's very difficult and it's very chaotic. Um, but the way people are handling it, the economic effects are going to be horrendous. You we're already beginning to see that uh, are going to be incredibly challenging for countries to, to deal with the economic fallout. We may still be in the early days. We just do not know. We still don't understand a lot about this virus. We have no idea how long it's going to last. We have no idea what's going to happen uh, in terms of what it does in the long term damage to human beings, to different organs. Uh, there are indications the long-term damage is quite severe in some people. So, you know, we are at very early stages in this pandemic, and the impact, I think, is potentially incredibly profound on everything from, uh, you know, individual societies and communities and high streets and shopping malls and firms and jobs and businesses through to the entire remit of global politics in terms of going forward over the next 10, 20, 30 years and really in terms of this fight that's going on between alternative systems of government, between autocratic uh, uh, countries such as China and democracies, which have traditionally been led by America, but unfortunately are, are not being well led in, at the moment. So do you think that there will ever be a, a call to put China and the communist, China's Communist Party on trial for what's happened? It seems like, you know, I know everyone's busy to put one word on it, with the virus, but it's also been quiet in terms of recriminations about China and, and the origins of you know COVID-19. It seems to have been quiet. So what do you think is going to happen there? Do you think it'll just go away? And I'm sure that's what China hopes, but what do you think will actually happen? Well, I'm sure it won't go away. And we're already seeing litigation attempts in, in the US and uh, I've seen Israeli lawyers involved in this as well. Uh, clearly there will be attempts to, to litigate over it and to blame China. Even if you just blame the Chinese cover-up, um, it may be that is enough to pursue a legal case. America is a very uh, legalistic society. So, um, you know, there's bound to be challenges there. Although 
you know, what's going to happen even if they win a case? You know, is it just a, uh, an academic issue because China's not going to pay damages? But again, this is why the origins are so important, because if it was a leak and if it was covered up, then again, you know, in terms of international uh, uh, legal issues, that's that's hugely, hugely significant uh, in, in terms of the implications of that. Although one thing I would add is there is a slight silver lining, which is that if it did come from the virus in, uh, from the laboratory, in many ways that's almost more comforting because we know human beings make mistakes, and you know if it came from there, then we know what caused it. It was a mistake in the laboratory. It will be difficult for the scientific community. It will be difficult for people engaged in this sort of cutting-edge scientific uh, biological research. But ultimately, we would at least know where it came from. If it came from some kind of uh, eruption of a zoonotic disease, whether through a host intermediate animal or through directly from bats, in a way that's more scary because, uh, you know, who knows where the next time a similar disease would come and this pandemic might be nothing on the next one. Actually, uh, you know, Ebola, for instance, is a far more, it's, it's a far more deadly disease. This coronavirus, in terms of the fatality rates, is a comparatively uh, non-deadly disease so you know the next one could be far worse so the one little silver lining I would offer is that in some ways it's more comforting if it is just a bit of human error in a laboratory that was pushing at the boundaries of scientists of, of science um, uh, and you know for the right reasons there, there, there's nothing malevolent I don't think in in the idea of what they were trying to do they were China was trying to get ahead and to get a lead in the world of science and biotechnology and um, genetics, and that's an entirely respectable thing for a nation to do. And, um, you know, uh, if it did come from that, actually, in some ways, that's more comforting than the idea that it erupted from nature, because, uh, you right. know, the danger next time could be worse. So what, what's your, um, I mean, I know no one knows, but what's your projection on what's going to happen economically worldwide over the next year and then health-wise in terms of the virus? The one thing I've learned recently as a journalist since uh, 2015, 2016 is there's no point trying to predict because it's always crazier the outcome. Uh, I have no idea what's going to happen in health terms, in economic terms. I think it's very clear the economic damage is huge. Uh, I don't buy the idea of a quick recovery that some people have claimed. Uh, a lot of jobs are going. For some sectors, it's very hard to see how things like uh, music, and arts and hospitality really get back into business if there's a second wave comes back uh, as looks likely as to be happening in places as far afield as Hong Kong and, and Europe and Spain, Spain, Germany, Belgium, places like that, then that's catastrophic industries which just about managed to get through the two or three months initial lockdown. Uh, there's no doubt the economic impact is huge. In Britain, uh, some people have said it'll be the most damaging uh, economic meltdown for 300 years, which is frankly terrifying and particularly when we live in such a volatile age well very good Ian what's the best place for people to follow your progress and to see new reporting that you're working on that'll be coming out soon and, and yeah in health terms again we have absolutely no idea uh, it's quite possible a vaccine will be discovered and they're building better treatments all the time and it's incredibly impressive what the medical world and scientific world is doing by pulling together and working out treatments and you know, the number of papers were drowning in papers from people trying to push forward our understanding of this. And, you know, it's possible 
that things we get relatively closely back to normal with the aid of vaccine and better treatments quite quickly. Equally, it's possible that we're just in the early stages of a pandemic and there's several waves to come and it gets worse or the virus does start to evolve and mutate significantly. At the moment, we just, I'm afraid, have, have no idea and it's depressing and it's, it's slightly scary and it's alarming and it's frustrating. But um, I think the absolutely okay. worst thing is to pretend that normal normality is just around the corner because, you know, that's one thing that's certain is that uh, we are in a very cur- weird, disruptive Era. It appears that some scientists, their work is being uh, repressed or they're pulling down papers, or um, some may have ties to China. They may be beholden to China financially or in other ways, uh, not just Chinese scientists, but scientists maybe in the U.S. or Australia or in Europe. What, what is, what's been your experience and observation there? Certainly one of the things that some of the braver scientists have pointed me to, particularly actually some Chinese scientists have pointed me out to this, is that there is a sort of scientific establishment in this area, as in any uh, profession or or sector of science or medicine or whatever. And a lot of those people do have strong links with China that are not necessarily being declared. So the most obvious one is Peter Daszak, who is head of a charity that investigates spillovers from diseases. Now, he is he gets paid $400,000 a year as head of that charity. Uh, and so he's understandably furious that his 15-year collaboration on bat diseases with Wuhan was disrupted when the National Institute of Health decided to stop their funding due to biosecurity concerns. Now, uh, that's fine, but he is everywhere saying it's definitely going to be zoonotic and pouring scorn on the idea of a laboratory leak theory. But of course, he does. Uh, he is a respectable character, but equally, he does have a... Uh, financial and professional motive in saying some of the things that he says and he's not alone in that a lot of there's a couple of other key people uh, who have been involved in some of these things who also have uh, links to this for instance one of the most important papers was in nature medicine on the 17th of march 2020 which said that essentially this was a zoonotic disease and uh, it's sort of basically ruled out the idea of of a lab leak now, you look at the people on that, they're all highly respectable, very well-known scientists. But equally, one of them is an Australian professor who's very prominent on a lot of these key papers uh, pushing the zoonotic idea. He is also, and it's never stated, an advisor to the Chinese CGD. Now, to me, I think that should always be made clear when he's talking on these issues or writing papers on these subjects. Another is an American professor called Ian Lipkin, who is, again, a very respectable professor, very well renowned. But equally, this is a man who was honoured by China in January uh, for his devotion to Chinese scientists and Chinese science. Now, that's not to say they're being corrupted by these things. It's just that I do think that this should be made clear in discussions of it and journalists and other scientists should be slightly wary that there might be some kind of establishment thing going on. We're always, as journalists, you're very cautious if, say, politicians have a vested interest, or indeed uh, readers are very cautious, rightly, if journalists have a vested interest, if they have particular links, whether financial or professional. Equally, we know that science is not immune to su- such uh, issues, and we've seen it in the past, and it's very important to be aware that there is, I think, a bit of an establishment Uh, going on here. There are people with vested interests 
who are pushing particular lines. Now that's not to accuse them of doing it for corrupt reasons, it's just to acknowledge that they may have a reason, uh, whether financial, professional, uh, or just emotional, because they've worked with uh, scientists at the centre of some of these uh, concerns, all of which are entirely understandable, but equally, they should be made very clear. And journalists, I think, should be much more critical and uh, cautious and curious about these links. And I'm quite shocked when I see some reporting of a lot of these people that people just ignore these or are unaware of them uh, because they wouldn't treat uh, politicians in that way and nor should they really treat scientists uh, in the same way. At the moment, we need, the public need full understanding of what's going on. They need full openness. We need full transparency on everything. And uh, that in, includes some of the people concerned. It makes sense. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to get this transparency. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like, um, I mean, China has no intention of uh, being transparent back then or now. So I guess it'll have to come from other places or be a forced transparency. Well, it may be we never learn. It may be we can uh, discover it through. I mean, there are, um, you know, that that uh, virus I mentioned, ROTG13, is very interesting and is arousing a lot of interest from more sceptical scientists. You know, it's possible that there might be whistleblowers. It's, it took a long time for a, uh, a leak in, in Russia. Uh, it took several years before the truth came out. Uh, so, you know, uh, we shouldn't give up hope. We may never know, but equally we may one day know. Certainly China isn't renowned for its transparency, but then we shouldn't ignore the fact that there's a lot of Chinese scientists doing amazingly good work, even now on all this. Uh, equally, you know, if we're going to have promote the idea that democracy and free expression is a good thing, which personally I believe devoutly that it is, then it's very important that our own scientists in the West are ultra-transparent. And I'm afraid I don't always think that has been the case recently. Well, very good, Ian. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And how can people find out more about your writing? Where can they go to see it? If they're really interested, I'm on Twitter, so Ian Birrell, or I have a website where I post up all my articles, although I'm afraid uh, I'm a little bit uh, uh, sluggish on that sometimes. So it's currently about six weeks out of date. Uh, otherwise, Google is always very helpful, of course. Well, very good, Ian. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Very nice to talk to you. And thanks for your interest. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.